Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey and Damien Hughes. Just a quick reminder, you can follow us on Instagram at High Performance. You can also watch full-length extended episodes of our chats on YouTube. Just look for the High Performance Podcast on YouTube. And once again, get yourself ready for some inspiration. Here's what's coming up in this week's episode. If you get to the start line knowing there's nothing more that you could have done within your powers to be the best you can be, then you can accept the result. You can shake the guy's hand if he beats you. But if you turn up at the start line, looking back, thinking, well, there was that session six months ago that I really chickened out of when it got really painful. If you can truly say you've done everything you can possibly do, then you can relax in the day. It's a bit like studying for your exams. If you've done the work, you can enjoy the experience. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets of their success. So today we're in Manchester, tucked away from a cold, wet day. As always, alongside me, the brains of the operation, my co-host, Professor, author, Damien Hughes. Um, look, Damien, I think we're both kind of intrigued about today's guest because in every possible way, I think he represents high performance. Yeah, very much. I, the, the area that I'm most intrigued to speak to our guest today around is this guy's a true cultural architect. This is a guy that went into an environment and really set the standards and shaped the culture around them and I'm intrigued to find out a little bit more about that. Let's get going then and introduce an 11 times world champion, a six times Olympic champion, the second most decorated Olympic cyclist of all time. Since retiring from cycling, he's set up a successful business, written books, competed in motorsport, taken on charity roles, probably most importantly of all, become a dad. He is relentless. He absolutely is high performance. He is Sir Chris Hoy. Hello. Hello. A cultural architect. I've never been called anything like that before. That's quite exciting. Well, I'll tell you where it comes from. Yeah. Um, so the idea of a cultural architect is somebody that just shapes a culture, like a leader without the title mm -hmm. necessarily. I recently met with um, Philip Hines and, oh, um, yeah. and Callum Skinner. Yeah. And it was really significant that they were talking about you in such reverential tones there was like a real respect in the way that they spoke about the way you dealt with them as young athletes and the example you set it was very much they saw you as the as the archetype of the standards of wow. British cycling and they always just take the mickey out of me I never actually thought they yeah no no behind <laughs> your back they do speak well, very highly nice. of you Chris so. 
Thank so you. when we talk then about you being a cultural architect, and we've heard there are a couple of your former teammates think you're exactly that. I know you're super modest, but I need you to kind of, if you wouldn't mind, explain to us what you think they might be referring to. Well, I'm a lot older than them for a start. Yeah. So I guess, um, so 16 years competing with uh, GB Cycling. So I started out as the youngest member of the team and finished as the oldest. And I think in the last few years, particularly with Phil, Phil came onto the team as a teenager. Yeah, he came from, he was born in Germany. He's got British parents, but he was born and raised in Germany. He came onto the team two years before the Olympic Games in London. And, you know, for him to come into this high-performance team, to adapt to a whole new environment, a whole different country, um, you know, basically I sort of took him under my wing a little bit and sort of tried to help him and, you know, and integrate him to the team selfishly as well, because I saw the potential he had for the team sprint. So I thought, well, he, I wasn't just being a nice guy, you know, it was nice to, you always want to try and help the younger athletes, but also I saw the potential he had and I thought, well, this guy could be the missing link to our, our team sprint. We were short of a man one for the, the team sprint and he had the potential. Um, so I guess that was part of it was Phil had, uh, yeah, could, could have been the, the and he, he turned out to be the, that successful link in the team. So when you talk about someone coming into your elite environment, take us in there if you can. Give us a kind of understanding of what was going on in that team that really, from when you joined, they were kind of also runs in the cycling world to the dominant force on the planet. I guess the biggest single thing that changed in the team um, was was lottery funding. You know, I was in the team 1994. Um, I got an email, sorry, not an email, I got a letter sent through when I was at university and I was in sort of freshers, Freshers mode at that point, I hadn't touched my bike for about two or three months. It was, you know, it was a hobby to me back then, riding a bike. Um, and I got this letter through from Doug Daly saying, we've got this new new velodrome opening in Manchester. We'd like you to come along as part of the, the development squad um, based on your performances at the national championships and the juniors last year. And, uh, you know, sort of literally two weekends a month and that was it. And that was that was enough of a, a lifeline to make me think. Well, this is worth training for, continuing with, because at that point there was no funding, there was no pathway, there was no coaching. Yeah, there was nothing that really gave you any hope at all that you could go on to become successful in your sport. There was we didn't up until that point we didn't have an indoor track, so you couldn't train twelve months of the year. Um, you know, if you wanted to train twelve months of the year, you had to go abroad. If you went abroad, you had to have money. Um, you had to get sponsorship, but you didn't have the results to get the sponsorship. So it was this catch-22 situation. So we were all just amateurs, really, you know, just enthusiastic amateurs, doing the best we could. And then the lottery started. We got this new facility in Manchester. We had, you know, I think I got paid £10,000 in my first year. And that Which seemed like rent. a lot of money. Well, that was probably. like a million pounds to me. That yeah. literally was like me winning the lottery. So based on my performances at, you know, the Commonwealth Games and national level, they identified me as a potential potential athlete of the future, but not, you know, I hadn't really produced any goods at that point. And it was, yeah, it was just this, this it paid, allowed me to pay for my rent and food and travel up and down from Edinburgh. And that was the lifeline and it gave me that first foot up. But, you know, you'd go to the, the World Championships in Manchester in 1996 and, you know, you had a tracksuit top that you had to, you, you borrowed for the week, you had to sign out for it. You know, you, you had this top, this grubby top that had been used, you know, for a few years before, different athletes. You had um, your own bike, so you borrowed a set of wheels from the team to, to race on. You gave the wheels back after the race. And it was, you know, you just can't, you explain these stories to younger athletes now and you say to them, this is what it was like. And they, they kind of roll their eyes and think, oh God, here he goes again about the old days. But it was genuinely proper amateur days. There was no funding, no support. Anyone that was involved was a volunteer. 
there were two full-time members of staff at that stage and and the lottery was the lifeline that's what started it all money doesn't buy you medals but it gives you the chance to to get the right facilities the right equipment the right people you know to help out and to coach you often hear athletes when they look back at so you'll hear footballers talk about their apprenticeships when they were having to clean boots and in your equivalent of having to travel up and down what lessons do you think you were learning there during that time i think at that time, I realized that, you know what, this realistically, it wasn't about winning medals or, or being the best in the world. It was about a journey to see how good I could be. It, I, I never really believed that I was going to become the best in the world, not just because there wasn't the funding or the support, but because I didn't believe that I was as good as anybody else. I thought, if I can get lucky here, somehow, you know, my dream was to, to make the team for the Commonwealth Games or maybe even make the Olympic team if I managed to squeak on there. But it wasn't because I thought, you know, I've got this this um, ability to do, to do it. It was just... At the center of it, it was a passion. It was a love for what I did. So I just, I loved riding my bike. I loved racing. And I thought if I can do this for as long as possible, I'm living the dream for as long as possible. But eventually the real world will have to sort of kick in and I'll have to get a real job. Like my, my great auntie used to, every time, whenever I won a, a championship or a medal or whatever, you know, you go around and see her and she'd be like, oh, that's fantastic, son. Well done, you know. <laughs> when are you going to get a proper job? You know, right. it, was, it was still this mentality of it's just, you're just playing around and having fun. And that's what it was to, to begin with. I just, that I, that I, doesn't I feel to me like an elite mentality, though. I, I, I suppose I assumed that you went in there truly believing that you could be world-class and truly believing it, that you were going to be the one, the success no, story. No, it, it didn't happen until later on. So I think it was... It was a number of things that happened and it wasn't just one moment. It was a number of stages that I went through to sort of transform from being just a, an enthusiastic amateur to becoming an Olympic champion. And Can you talk us through them? Yeah, sure. Well, I had, because we didn't really have coaching infrastructure, we didn't have anybody there to tell us what to do. You had to work it out yourself. So I went to uni. I did sports science as my subject. Um, well, I started in physics and maths and then changed pretty quickly to sports science. Again, on the theme of enjoying what you do, I realized that I was, I was going to the, to the library and I was getting papers out on sports science, essentially, to try and learn for myself, to try and learn how to train better, to try and get the best at myself. And I kind of thought, well, what's the point of me doing a degree that I'm not really enjoying? Why don't I do something I've got a passion for? And then I'll, it won't seem like I'm working. So I was doing sports science to learn selfishly, to try and make myself a better athlete, not just to get a degree. Then Craig McLean, my teammate, um, club mate, my friend, he was more of a, a coach and a mentor to me than anything. He just, I, you know, I train with him all the time and try and desperately keep up with him. And he was my my benchmark on a really good day. If he was having a bad day, I could just about match his performance. So he was, I don't know what he got from training with me, but I got a lot from training with him because he helped sort of drag me up um, in the early days. Jason Queeley, um, winning the gold medal in Sydney, you know, Jason, Jason was just an ordinary bloke. This guy who was your mate, your teammate, who won a gold medal at the Olympic Games. And it, it changed my view on what Olympic champions mm. were. Because the Olympic yep. champions, until that point, we didn't have any in our team, apart from Chris Borman in Barcelona, and he was doing a different event. There was nobody in our, in our event, in the sprint events, who was Olympic champion in our generation, or even, I think, since sort of Reg Harris's time. So you never had anybody to aspire to. You didn't have a role model. You didn't have someone that you could look at and think, I can emulate them, until Jason came along and won that gold medal in Sydney. And it was, it was a bit of a light bulb moment with, with Jason. And I, I thought, well, he's just this ordinary guy and he's won the gold medal. If he can do it, you know, I don't think I'm the same level as him yet, but maybe I could get close to that. And did you ever speak to Jason at that time as well and try and pick his brains to Absolutely. understand it? Absolutely. So that was the, basically the next year. He had kind of a, a year out, essentially, just doing a bit of a down, a down year. Um, and 
you know, having a guy in your team who was the, the current Olympic champion, you know, I just basically started picking his brain, saying what, you know, what training should I be doing, learning as much as I could from him. And a measure of what, of Jason Queeley as a man, as a person, initially, yeah, he was like, yeah, great, I'll help you out. And then as time went on, I started to improve and get closer to him. He didn't then say, all right, you've come far enough now, you know, we're going to get too close here, we're rivals, you know, you're on your own. He still kept on helping me right up to the point that here in Manchester, 2002 Commonwealth Games, we were competing separately, you know, England and Scotland in the same event. And he still helped me right up to the, the day. Um, wow. And on the night, I beat him by a couple of tenths of a second. And he was the first person to come over and congratulate me. And I remember at the time thinking, well, if I'm ever in that situation, if I'm ever the old guy, the reigning champion, and someone else comes up and beats me, I want to be able to have that same graciousness and, and attitude. But Jason was, he was the person that, that shaped me and gave me the belief that maybe I could do it too. And how did you feel the night before that race when it's like Luke Skywalker taking on a... <laughs> a well, I, I just wanted a medal. You know, even at that point, I just remember thinking if I can get close here um, to get a Commonwealth Games medal for Scotland was just, you know, a, a really, really right. big target for me. And I won it and I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I was still just shocked. You know, I went up quite early on, posted my time because you go on one by one against yeah. the clock. So he was last to go. And I'd, I'd, I thought, well, I've got the silver medal. This is amazing. And then watched his ride and saw him dropping behind me and thinking, well, is this really happening? And then when, you know, when I won the race, it was, that, that was a big moment. And then eight weeks later, winning the world championship. So I had that belief that, well, I can do this now. I can do it again. Once you can prove that to yourself that it's possible, people can tell you it's possible, but until you actually see it and do it yourself, um, I don't think you necessarily believe it. So that was, 2002 was a big year for me and that was when things started to, to shift. So you kind of almost felt in 2002 like the veil had been pulled back. The kind of secret to high performance mm. life was exposed to you at that moment and you realised, hold on a minute, there's no secret to success. No. Anyone can get it and I've just been shown that. And yeah. that was it, then you're off. Yeah. And it was people like Graham O'Brien, who was a, a big hero of mine. Um, he was a Scottish um, world champion back in the mid-90s in a different event to mine. But for me, it was it was his approach to training, his commitment to every single session. And I watched a video, there was a documentary that's on YouTube about him and Chris Boardman called The Contenders, I think, Battle of the Bikes. And there's a scene there where he's he's just absolutely destroying himself on this old rusty static trainer in his backyard. And when you see somebody really digging deep, and I saw him training once and just watched, just just saw how much commitment he threw into every single session. It wasn't because it was there was a world title on the line. It was just a Wednesday afternoon, and this is how he trained every single day. And I remember thinking, I'm not doing that yet. I, I need to to switch that kind of mode in my head and have that intensity in every single session. So and how old were you when? I was about 18 or 19, or right. maybe 1920 at that point, and realizing this is how I need to train. So it takes time. You can't just do that overnight. But yeah. that was the moment I thought I need to start really committing. So at the heart of everything I did was every single effort of every single session counts. So, you know, as, if you get to the start line, knowing there's nothing more that you could have done within your powers to be the best you can be, then you can accept the result. You can shake the guy's hand if he beats you. But if you turn up at the start line, looking back, thinking, well, there was that session six months ago that I really chickened out of when it got really painful. Uh, you know, no one else knew, but I know that I didn't go 100%. Or there was a stag deal went on, you know, three months ago that I probably shouldn't have done and had a big night and, I, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's knowing there's nothing, you know, within your powers, if you can truly say you've done everything you can possibly do, then you can relax in the day. It's a bit like studying for your exams. If you've done the work, 
yeah. you can enjoy the experience and you know whatever happens happens but can i ask you a question on that chris for somebody listening to this that is having a bad day or you know when they've come home after a long day at work and they're exhausted and mm-hmm. th- they've got that choice of sitting on the sofa or going out for a run how did you compel yourself to to squeeze that drop out of you that every drop i think it was knowing that, that that literally every effort counts and if you weren't training right now your rivals will be training right i didn't see myself as having the same potential as other people so i thought i have to work so much harder to get the result compared to you know i, I hate the word talent because it, it, it kind of gives the impression that you just turn up and you're good at whatever it is you do when it doesn't matter who you are you know it could be usain bolt he still has to train like a demon to, to, to make those, yeah. to produce those performances. So I, I, I guess I felt like I almost had to work harder than everybody else to, to get the results. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that was the, that was the belief that I had right. and that pushed me on it. But I also, I didn't enjoy the pain. I didn't enjoy the actual moment of suffering through a session, but I, I enjoyed the feeling of getting through a day and feeling I'd taken a step towards that end goal. So I would have every day I would have a target. I wouldn't just be this this great big target on the horizon in four years' time. Every single day I would have a plan. I would have targets within that session, knowing exactly what numbers I had to hit or, you know, the, the kind of output I'd have to produce to have a good session. Everything was measurable. And I'm quite scientific in the way I approach things. I like to have numbers and figures and, and data. So I would I would look at everything and I would, you know, I'd plan it out beforehand and I would log it and then I would see that little step towards that end goal. And once you were sort of opened up to this growth mindset of believing that it was within your grasp, no excuses, the opportunity is yours if you want Mm -hmm. to take it. How many times did you give up when training, when working? Never, never, you know, I I never... But you were involved in British Cycling for what, 16 years? 16 years, yeah. And you didn't once just go, nah, this is... No, no, there was was points, so it becomes becomes a point where you can push yourself too hard, you know, you could be like a racehorse, you just keep going and going until you fall down. Once you start having a coach around you, you take it takes time to begin to trust them and know that they have the right judgment. So when the coach says to you, "Right, I think you've done enough now. You're, you know, you're you're clearly needing a rest." The instinct was always to push on and now nah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And part of it was to prove that you could do it, and it was a to show that you were strong and show to yourself as well. But you would never back down. It was always if you're in a, if you're not going well, the solution was to train harder, which is ridiculous, really. You know, it's, it's great to have that mentality to push hard, but to me, it was learning the difference or the, learning when to push and when to rest. So the coaching staff really helped me. In later years, they would say, right, you know, look at the numbers today. You're dropping off a cliff here. The times are getting slower and slower. There is no point in training when you're when you're this fatigued. You've got to rest. And it took me years to get to that point where I go, okay, but I would never be the one to say, I think I should stop now because I'm, I'm getting, you know, the, the times aren't great or I'm, I'm suffering So how do you much. do that now then, Chris? So like, how do you know when to ease off a bit and give yourself a now, break? Because you um, have a busy packed agenda. Yeah, well, I think now it's 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 just so different now because life life went from being a, a single focus and everything else had to fit around it or, you know, literally just didn't exist. So you didn't, you, everything had to be about training and recovery and diet and competition. And now it's it's about, I guess, enjoying variety and balance and having so many different things to do but as Jake mentioned at the start becoming a dad as well when you become a parent then the shift becomes your kids and they are the center of everything and your work and your rest of your life fits around that so so now it's about I guess being efficient in how you do stuff planning in advance making sure that well if I want to do all these things I've got to be sure that I can get from A to B to C to D in a as as, you know easy way as possible um, and and try and fit it all in but but equally if you do too much you become 
tired and run down and you can't you, you can't do it all and you can't do it well so i'd rather do less stuff but do it well than do too much and and do it half-heartedly could we talk about when your son callum was born mm. because you went from being an elite athlete which i don't know but i assume is quite a selfish life right everything yeah, revolves around you your yep. training your nutrition your travel mm -hmm. your medals your targets and almost overnight you go and you see the doctor and they say right we need to get this baby out mm. three months before your baby was due to be born. Your wife then became ill, your baby was ill, and suddenly you've gone from the most important person in your world to the least important person Yeah, because it becomes about them. How was that mindset shift for you? I guess it, it wasn't even a, a conscious thing, but you, you just, like anything in life, when really important stuff happens, you just deal with it. Obviously, when you Sarah was pregnant and, it, you know, fantastic, it was going to be great. Um, I hadn't even, you know, painted as, we didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, we but anything yet. It was, you know, literally naively thinking we got lots of time. And then out the blue, Sarah became unwell and Callum was born at 29 weeks. And I guess even before then, I, I guess life had shifted from being this, a selfish, focused athlete a little bit. But that was a big step to suddenly, you know what, this, this little thing who, you know, he was two pounds when he was born, two pounds, two ounces. He was tiny and he was in hospital for the first sort of eight, nine weeks of his life, perspective comes in. And Steve Peters, who was our, our psychologist in the team, used to talk about perspective a lot and used to try and, before a big event, you know, you'd, I mean, I've seen Steve once a week before London. You know, people are quite surprised when they learn how much time you spend with a psychologist. But psychology is like anything else in your overall training. You have to work on these techniques to become um, better at them. So for perspective, Steve would be saying things like, well, do you know what, you're, you're riding a bike in anti-clockwise circles around the track. It's not It's not life and death here. You know, at, trying to get some perspective on what it is you do. You've got to care about it. You've got to be passionate about it, but also learn that it is quite trivial. But when it comes to something like, that is life and death and that, you know, it is properly stressful, um, it's not easy. But, but you'd also gone from control. Like the mm, one thing you yeah. have when you're an athlete, you're in control of everything. Yeah. And now you have control of nothing at all, don't you? Yeah, and you want answers too. So you're, you know, you're used to looking at data. You're used to looking at stuff that is quite black and white. Yeah, the doctors can never give you any guarantees, or they don't, you know, say, well, we just have to wait and see. And you know, it takes time. And it, it, it's, and I guess as well, sitting doing nothing, you've got very little control over the situation. You know, you 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 just sit and watch this little baby in an incubator for hours a day, and you get to change his nappy, you know, and you get to take him out and do a bit of skin to skin. And that's it. But he's got tubes and wires and cables and all sorts. And he's so fragile, you're terrified you're going to hurt him. So it's, it was without doubt the hardest period of our lives. And it's, it wasn't like it just sort of stopped. You know, it was a very gradual thing. Like now he's, he's five and he's at school and he's doing really well. But you still, you know, you never then sort of stop worrying. You worry about your kids regardless of what the situation is. But I guess the, going back to the point, yeah, it's your whole world shifts and your perspective and your priorities change. And... So what intrigues me, Chris, is that like even when you're talking there around becoming a dad, there's very much a, a sense of there's a plan, there's a meticulous process mm -hmm. that you follow. When do you ever just let yourself not follow the process and just let life take you? Um, I, I guess that's what's kind of happened a lot more since I've retired. And it was the, the biggest, the most liberating feeling when you retire, or for me certainly, was not worrying about how you were feeling. So every, like when you were training and competing, every day you wake up and your body's aching. You know, you, the only time you don't ache is in this two weeks before competition when you start to taper off and you're resting more because every other moment of the, the four-year cycle, you're, you're, 
you are suppressed by this fatigue. You're, you're training your body so hard. You can't afford to be fresh all the time. You, you've got to work, work, work. So that, that period when you finish and it's this feeling of, it doesn't matter. It really, it's, it doesn't matter. You know, there's... And it, is that it, liberating or it scary? Is. It's both. Because, it, you know, you, liberating because you feel, finally, um, you can just sort of breathe out and go, do you know what? Um, and it makes it sound like I wasn't enjoying it. I had an amazing career, amazing time. But there is, there's, you know, there's no denying there's a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation which you put on yourself um, to do as well as you can. But then when you retire, you know, I went to, went to America shortly after I retired and you've got to fill in the little green card and, you know, name and address occupation. And the first time where you kind of go for 20 years, whatever, I'd written cyclist. And all of a sudden it's like, well, who, what, what am I? You know, what, how do you define yourself? You define yourself by what you do. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you're an ex-cyclist. You, that's what I used to do. That was the first moment I really had to sort of deal with that. Wow, you know, what's, what, is, what is the future going to hold? What am I going to do? You know, I, I don't want to spend your whole life looking backwards and talking about the old days. And I realize the irony that we are doing that right yeah, now. Yeah. But you want to have new challenges and new things to look forward to. So, um, yeah, it's, you do have to stop and smell the roses every now and again. But equally, you want to keep moving on and having new challenges and new targets because, yeah, it's, that's what life's about. So what would you write down today then? Today I would write um, company director, probably something dull like that. <laughs> yeah. Have you not taken though everything you learned from British Cycling into being a company director? I'm, I'm interested to know what learnings there have been from your sporting career that has now turned your hoy bikes into such a success. Well, I, I think the key thing is I always used to look to the best guys to analyse their techniques and their training methods. And I guess business is no different. You, know, you look at what else is in the market, who's doing well, how are they doing it. Learning from the best, I think, is a good starting point. But also realizing that you're starting a whole, you're on the bottom rung of a whole new ladder. You can't expect it to come straight in, in the middle of the top. It's, but with that, it's quite exciting because you're, you know, you've been doing something at the very top level, but with minimal headroom for improvement for so long, you're looking at the tiniest fractions. Whereas every time you do something new, you, you take big, big steps, you're on that steep part of the learning curve. Um, it's quite a, quite a fun part of, uh, part of the journey. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think the one word that sort of springs to mind when we talk about your entire career from starting out to now running businesses is courage. Because I think you really have to have courage to put yourself into that British cycling setup. You've got to have courage to try and be one of the leaders in there. You've got to have courage when you're on the start line. Courage when you retire. Courage when your child and wife are both seriously ill. And then when you've done all that, where you could just chill out and sit in your garden all day, you then have to have courage again to go, right, I'm going to set up a bike company. I'm not only that, I'm going to be courageous enough to put my name to it so that if it doesn't work out and it is a failure, it's crystal clear who's had this failure. Hadn't considered that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's going well, so you're okay. Yeah, it's... I, I but do, do you feel like a courageous person? Does that ring I think a bell? There's times when you do... Like there was times when you walk onto the track, like particularly things like the sprint or the Kieran, um, as an event, they're really gladiatorial. There's there's just this you're stepping up and you're either gonna win or you're gonna lose, you know, in a in a sprint scenario. There's there's two of you. It's very man on man, toe-to-toe kind of thing. And you've got to go in there with the kind of fighting spirit and the the you've got to have courage, because if you don't, they'll dominate the race and you'll lose. So there were moments where I remember thinking like London rolling up on the start line in the Kieran final, it was like you know, there's a lot of expectation here. Um, this is this is a big moment, but realizing that you know what, I'm so lucky to have this chance because you can either look at it as a, a burden and the pressure and the weight of the world on your shoulders, or you can go, this is amazing. You know, this is an Olympic Games, Olympic Games final. The crowd are all ninety percent of the crowd are cheering for me. This is something that not many athletes ever get the chance to do. So make the most. And you had that clarity, did you? Only, only with a lot of work. It didn't. It didn't come, you know, instantly or, or easily. It was with with Steve Peters, with the work I was doing with him. It was about having perspective and understanding how your brain is going to try and you know jeopardize everything. It's going to try and jump into the fight or flight mode. It's going to try and become emotional. It's going to try and react to things around you. But if you expect these things and you have a plan for what you want to think about and how you can control them, um, then you'll give yourself the best chance of, of performing well. But it wasn't it wasn't like we were walking around like robots the whole time. It was the ability to, to switch, if you lost focus, to switch back into focus. And you were doing that hundreds of times a day, maybe thousands of times a day. You would talk through scenarios of, of you know stressful environments and racing, what could happen, what might happen. You know, how would you deal with that? How would you um, address these worries or concerns with logic? And the trouble is you don't have these big pressurized moments every day. So you can't go out and just practice them willy-nilly. You've got to use them on things like, you know, if you're out driving the car and someone cuts you up, not reacting to that, understanding you know, what, what benefit is there going to be from blowing the horn or shouting or chasing after them. These are the things you would use to try and use these little annoying parts of the day to to test your 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 control and your ability to, to focus and not get emotional. It strikes me that Jake's theme about courage that he, that he attributed to you before, Chris, that it was courageous to go and seek Steve out. And it sounds courageous that you kept going it and recognised it was a process. How rare was that, the willingness to work on the psychological side as well as the <laughs> physical and the tactical? Yeah, it was really... When Steve joined the team in 2002 or three. Nobody, like he just sat in his office and no one was knocking on his door. It took Jason Queeley um, to go and start seeing him, right. who was seen as a senior member of the team, one of our kind of main guys. And, and Steve came, uh, sorry, and Jason came back and was saying, that was really interesting. He's, he's a fascinating guy. And, we, you know, what did you do? You know, were you lying on a sofa talking about your childhood and stuff? And he's like, <laughs> no, we just sat and had a chat. And 
back in those days, the, the, the notion of a psychologist, it was almost this sort of, ooh, you know, it's a sign of weakness to go and see a psychologist. It was, it was a, a bit of a taboo back yep. then. And that's, what, 15, 16 years ago. And it, you think how much it's changed now. But it took time. And I think with, with Steve, um, yeah, it was, it was because other writers were going to see him that I thought, well, maybe I will go and see him and have a chat. And, and he actually came to me in, it was in 2004, was the first time really he sort of engaged or we engaged together. He, he came to see me in at the Celtic Manor um, about three weeks before the Olympics in Athens. Right. And he said, have you got time for a quick chat? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, sat down, had a coffee. What were you thinking at that point? Well, I was thinking, why is he coming, you know, what, <laughs> this is a bit weird, but I thought maybe he was just, you know, just doing the rounds to check everyone was okay. And he said, you know, how are things going? And I said, oh, it's going really well, you know, brilliant. Injury-free, form's good. I retain, I re regain my world title um, this year. So, you know, I'm going to be starting number one seed at the Olympics in three weeks' time. Dead happy, you know, ready to go for it. And he said, that's, that's brilliant, really pleased that, you know, you've turned it around this year, it's going well. Um, and he said, I just want to pose one scenario to you. You know, what are you going to do if somebody breaks the world record right before you get on the track? And the event I was doing, the kilo, you're against the clock one by one, and I would be last to go. So I would see all my rivals post their times. And he's, you know, I said, well, I, I just won't think about it. And he said, well, if I say to you right now, don't think about a pink elephant, what is the first thing that pops into your head? And this, this pink elephant popped into my head. And I thought, right, well, he's got my attention. All right, he's doing some sort of mind control <laughs> technique on me. Um, I said, all right, well, what, what, what should I do then if I, I shouldn't not think about it? He said, well, you can't not think about something. You have to, you know, you can only want to think about one thing at any one time. And if you say, don't think about something, you get drawn towards it. So you have to actively choose what you want to think about, and that will displace any other thoughts. Cognitive displacement, I think it's called. Um, so he said, you know, what, what I would like you to do between now and the games in the next three weeks, every time you get anxious or stressed about anything, it doesn't have to be about the cycling, I want you to visualize that the race, this one kilo time trial, from your perspective, in real time, from start to finish. So it takes about a minute. And just visualize yourself doing the perfect performance, that perfect ride. I was like, all right, thank you. Well, that's nothing new. Visualization is nothing groundbreaking. Went back to the room, logged onto the internet, and it was uh, the Cycling News website. One of the, my rivals had posted some great time, um, you know, in training. And I suddenly thought, oh, God, he's gone really well. And he's going to be flying in three weeks. Time. I thought, oh, wait a minute. Don't engage with this negative thought. Let's just shut my eyes, visualize, you know, rehearse this, this race. And at the end of the minute, I was like, Oh, I feel all right, and just moved on. And then, as the days went on, as I got closer to the to the games before we got out to Athens, it was just getting more and more and more. I was doing this more and more times, and then on the night itself, it was just this almost constant loop of you know visualizing this race because there's so much stress and so much stuff happening around you. So it doesn't allow if you're just constantly choosing what you're thinking about, the negative, anxious thoughts don't have a, an an in. They can't get in. And then, as if you had a crystal ball, four riders to go, Shane Kelly stepped up and wrote the world record and again used the technique to sort of push that out. The next guy, Stefan Nimka, same again, went even faster. And then as I'm sitting about to get on the bike, one rider to go, Arno Tourno, went even quicker. New Olympic record, new world record, all that stuff. But it was having that technique and having that ability to say, do you know what, it doesn't matter what, just keep going, just hang on to this one thing. This is your, your lifeline, grip onto this. Don't allow the panic to set in. You know, it was just in terms of pressure, in terms of the script, the way that it was, you know, leading towards his final ride. Normally, I think that would have been too much and I'd have been 
distracted and panicking about what they were doing, but I managed to focus on myself. You know what I think is great about this is that there are people listening to this going, well, that's brilliant advice, but I'm not a professional cyclist, so no use to me, is it? But actually, we now live in a world where particularly with social media, what do we do all the time? Compare ourselves to everybody else. Mm. So what should we then be doing? pushing that aside and focusing on ourselves. Yeah. And whether it's your wife going, oh, look at the lovely life my friends are living on Instagram <laughs> or your kids coming home from school yeah. going, I mean, mm. my daughter does dance and someone got a gold and she got a silver and that really bothered her for a, for an amount of time. This is the kind of advice mm. that no matter who you are, whatever your walk of life, using that technique yeah. suddenly puts you back in control. And I think to own your own thoughts means you, you're owning your own actions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think understanding what you have control over in life is a big uh, important step to to kind of overcome and once you realize that there's so many things you can't control there's so many things that why worry about stuff that you you literally cannot control focus on what you can do it's all about just you know accepting responsibility for your own performance not making excuses and if you do lose you say i'm going to come back stronger next time well done to him he's done really well enjoy the moment but i will be back and i will you know <laughs> so as a father though uh-huh. How early have you started teaching these lessons to him? I don't know if I have. Um, you, you, yeah. <laughs> the day's so busy doing, trying to get him to school and get him back and get their dinner in them and get him to bed. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think subconsciously, I hope these messages are coming through. It's, you, I mean, you must be saying to him, that's not your fault, mate. Oh, yeah. It's your responsibility yes. to deal with it. Yeah, you know? well, it's, I, I don't know. I guess it's... It's not about sport. It's not. It's just. It's life, isn't it? It's about trying to to bring your kids up in a way that you hope they're equipped to deal with stuff and make their own decisions. And and you worry about doing too much for them, or they're not doing enough for them. And you know, you, it's, there's so much pressure on parents to do the right the right thing. And everywhere there's information, and everywhere people are doing things differently. And again, like social media, like you were saying before, you can you can beat yourself up, and you can be like a deer in the headlights, worrying about all these different options of what should I be doing. I guess at some point you've got to. Just choose your path, stick to it, commit to it, and do the best you can. What was the information or the advice that Steve gave you about dealing with setbacks <coughs> in your career? So whether um, it's when you were brilliant at the kilo and they just took it away from the Olympics and you had to refocus, or when you had injuries or accidents and you were off the bike for a period of time and you saw all your teammates improving and improving mm. and you're, you're unable to compete. Setbacks, I, I guess it comes back to dealing with what you have control over. So it's... It's having patience, it's having, you know, resetting your goals. For injuries, it's the most frustrating thing that in sport, I think, for any athlete, an injury, because all you want to do is train. All you, you know, your, your default setting is to push on, to do more, to train harder. And when you can't, it's it's just like you're, you know, you're you're kind of a in a situation where you're, the frustration's building, you haven't, and you don't realize how much physical activity it can affect your mental state as well. And you miss that, that daily endorphin release you miss that activity for me when I was injured I was very lucky I really only had one period where it was a really bad proper you know lay off the bike you know 10 weeks of doing nothing at all the rest of the time the injuries were all ones you're managing you know you're going to see the physio every day but you could still modify your training but I guess setbacks were resetting your goals you know looking at where are you now what happened learn from your mistakes it's a cliche to say you learn more from your mistakes than your victories, but I, I truly believe that's the case. So People try and avoid failure. Yeah, they do. They don't... Did you have to seek it when you were competing? Um, no, I think failure comes to you eventually. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, it's, it's, I guess I, I never believed that I was invincible. Some athletes did. And as Steve Peters used to say, the Father Christmas syndrome, you know, you, once you realize he doesn't exist, you can't then go back to believing in him. And if you believe you're invincible, and that's your, that's your whole mindset, and then you lose... You just, all you got to do is lose one race 
And once you've lost that one race, that whole mindset, that whole belief system has gone. Failure, for me, if once you've got a winning, what you see is a winning formula, you can be frightened to change and to make any changes. And certainly after 2002, when I won the Commonwealth Games and the Worlds, I had a fantastic season, a real breakthrough season. I thought I'd cracked it. I thought, this is the formula. This is what I need to do. If I train this way again, if I eat this way again, if I rest this way again, this will produce the winning medal next year. But what, all that happens is you raise the bar and then all the guys that are behind you, they're chasing after you and they, they, they raise the bar further. So you've got to continuously improve yourself. And by doing that, you have to change just not everything. You don't change, you know, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you, you make little changes to the things that can be improved and you keep the things that are really structural, you know, important to the overall thing. What intrigues me towards the latter end of your career, Chris, is that if we go back to the way you described those early days where you had frames of reference, so you had Jason Queeley setting an example, you had Graham Mowbray where you could see the work ethic that's mm -hmm. gone on there. When you start getting into the territory of being a multiple Olympic champion, where were your frames of reference there to dictate how do you behave, how do you conduct yourself? In terms of behaviour and conducting yourself, I think it, it was, I don't know, I, I guess it's what you instinctively feel is, is right for yourself. Without doubt, the hardest four years of my career was from post-Beijing to, to London because no matter what you, you can sort of tell yourself at the time, I was 32 after Be or in Beijing, 36 in London. That was you know, the, very much the, the back end of my career. No other athlete had won a gold medal in a sprint event, individual sprint event, um, after the age of I think 30. And I was 36 going into into London. So I kept saying, you know, it doesn't matter. They're not, you know, as long as I keep performing, it's great. But I was noticing that my recovery wasn't as great as it had been. So I could still put out one-off efforts that were as good or better than I've ever done before. But it took me a long time to get over that. Yeah, I think towards the end of my career, you start to become a bit more reflective. And I think you try and draw on everything you've learned in your, in your early years and bring it together. And Physically, you're, you might be starting to plateau or even drop off, but you're, you, all the experiences, all the knowledge, understanding your body, when to rest, when to train, how to deal with the pressure, knowing that when you get on the start line, you've been there before, you've, you've, you draw upon these experiences and they help you. So whilst some, certain things are dropping off, other things are, are gaining and you're getting, getting better at it. Your big moment was being on the start line. And obviously you had worlds and Euros and things, but the Olympics was what your sport was yeah. really all about. It was built around the Olympics. So effectively, four years of training and creating and developing and getting better for the Olympic Games. Now, most people listening to this won't compete in Olympic Games, but they will still have things that they build up to mm. and they have to deliver on the day. Mm. So can you talk us through your mindset on the day of an Olympic final and what, what you're thinking as you're sitting on the start line I mean, as you just said, you're pushing everything else away apart from the race itself. But yeah. what is the process of making sure that four years of effort is not thrown away in 60 seconds? I guess the point is that you you can't magic a performance out of nowhere. It's not that, you know, you can go and see a psychologist and they will give you the tools to sort of produce something that you, you, you could never have done before on the day. But what you what you, tends to happen is people underperform. So you you know you get to the big big occasion and the stress gets to you. You get distracted. You change your game plan for whatever reason. You underperform. So the key is it's just about having the tools to do what you know you can do, but do it under the most extreme pressure of situations. Uh, we've got some quick fire questions. Yeah, yeah, to finish sure. with. So um, three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Um, timekeeping. I lost my temper a few times with 
certain athletes in the Why team. Why did that bother you so much? Because I think it's a sign of lack of respect for if you're in a group environment and you know everybody's focused on their own individual goal, but you're part of a team. If you're the one that turns up and holds the whole group back and you've got your training plan and you've got everything structured and they turn up late and you can't leave, you know, it's talking about in training camps or in, in certain situations, then it throws everybody else's plans out. So for me, timekeeping was was absolutely crucial. Um, you can't refer to yourself in the third person. <laughs> Even if you're no. a sir. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing annoys me more than athletes talking about themselves in the third person. Yeah, it's, it's the most pretentious, arrogant thing. I don't know, it's just such a really weird thing to start talking about. Damien Hughes Beijing. agrees with that point, Chris. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was after Beijing and I got interviewed by one of the Scottish journalists and he'd heard, he'd been in a press conference with Michael Phelps and Michael Phelps had said, um, you know, one, of the, one of the American journalists said, so what? A lot of people have been giving their opinion on Michael Phelps over the last 24 years, but what does Michael Phelps think about Michael Phelps? And Michael Phelps started referring to Michael Phelps in the third person. Yeah. So this journalist asked me the same question, but for me, thinking this will be an interesting one. And I said, um, I think the day that Chris Hoy refers to Chris Hoy in the third person is the day Chris Hoy disappears up his own arse. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they were like, Pfft. so uh, final behavior, I think excuses. You can't make excuses. You've got to take, take responsibility not refer to yourself in the third person and turn up on time. So next one then, Chris. What advice would you give a teenage Chris that's just started out on, on his journey? Believe in yourself and, and don't underestimate what you can do. We all have the power to do amazing things. If you apply yourself, if you find something you really care about and you really enjoy and you commit to it, you will amaze yourself at what's possible. And it's not just, I've had that experience, so I think that's possible. I've seen it in so many other people, not just in sport, in all different forms of life. Um, you spent your life working with a sports psychologist, Steve Peters. What is the one piece of learning or the one thing you picked up from him that you think everyone should hear and everyone should know? Um, I, I guess perspective in life. You know, he talks about um, when you're, if you imagine yourself on your deathbed and your grandkids are sort of coming to see you and they're saying, what, what is important in life? You're not going to say to them, it's important to race bikes as fast as you can on the track or it's important to earn lots of money, or it's important to be really good at something. You know, he said, you, you've got to enjoy yourself. You've got to enjoy doing what you do. Have a passion, go out there and, and be the best you can be. But, you know, priorities in life and understanding that, you know, these are all fairly trivial things. Unless you're saving lives, then most of what we do is pretty trivial. So how important is legacy to you then, Chris? I guess to know that you have the respect of your, your teammates, but also your rivals too. You know, now when you retire and you can let the kind of guard down, you can let the, the mask down if you like. When you meet your, your rivals who've retired or maybe still racing, but you're, you're no longer competing with them. Yeah, I, I, love, I love that sense of, you know, you've, you've been through a journey either with somebody or against somebody, but you come out the other end and you can be mates and friends and, and still have that mutual respect. So um, yeah, I guess it's, it's people at the end of the day. It's, it's friendships, it's relationships. That's, that's what's really important. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to finish. There'll be people listening to this who are constantly chasing perfection and chasing success. So I think to finish on the message that actually it just comes down to people at the end of the day and living a life that you can be proud of for all the right reasons is is the perfect way to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's been great fun. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, guys. Damien. Jake. You know what stands out for me? There's two things from from that conversation is the first one about responsibility. He's a guy who was almost taught how to take absolute responsibility for everything, wasn't he? Zero excuses. Yep. 
you know yeah, I mean? love that idea that that was what he said. Then there was a no excuses culture in his whole life, and you know where we spoke about getting frustrated at seeing athletes make excuses after performance. You win or you lose, but you own you own your performance. And also how mental control became something that he was so comfortable with. Like he talks about it so sort of off the cuff. He's like, well, I was on the, you know, the, the start gate for a, an Olympic final and the three previous people before me had broken world records. So I had to put that out of my mind and focus on my own performance. Right. You can't just say it like that. Like that is surely yeah. one of the hardest, like psychologically, one of the hardest things to do. But he'd trained himself so much that he could, in that hugely high pressure situation, four years of work behind him, he was able just to remove from his head three things that would that would sort of disable most people in that moment. But the significant thing for me, Jake, was the fact that he spoke about investing the time to go and practice that as a skill. He described it as a skill. It wasn't something that you're either blessed with or you're not. He spoke about the idea of he went along and sought psychological help and didn't see it as something's broken. He saw it as how could it enhance what he already had. If ever you wanted to hear someone talk about the fact that there's no secrets to life apart from self-belief, hard work, and kind of going for it, then that is the conversation to listen to, isn't it? Textbook. Textbook. And I think anybody listening to this particular podcast, I think it's the kind of thing that you'd want your children to listen to and give them that same understanding. Well, look, thanks so much for joining us to hear the amazing things that Chris Hoy had to say. Damien's alongside me once again. Hi there, Damien. Hiya, Jake. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, mate. How's your week been? All right? Yeah, really nice. Yeah, good. Good. Well, once again, um, all week long, I know you and you're on Instagram now and I've been getting them as well. Loads of messages coming in on social media, lots of questions, lots of comments. Um, we've got one here from... Um, DSA Walton. Do you know what I love about this comment? It's a simple one. All it says is life lessons here with a clapping emoji, talking about the Marcelino Sambe podcast, but it came from Australia. The other side of the planet, Damien, from where we're recording these podcasts. And, and ah, that just fills me with, with joy. It's phenomenal, isn't it? I've been speaking to a couple of uh, Australian friends that uh, have thoroughly been enjoying it. Um, and I've been speaking to a couple of potentially interesting guests from uh, that side of the world that are in, interested in joining us. So uh, watch this space, as they say. Brilliant. And I know you had you had a message from a friend of yours, because one of the things that I'm really liking about this podcast is that, of course, you know, people like me who are not sports people and just living a sort of normal life are loving it, but also people who are operating at the very elite level of sport are also listening and, and sending messages, aren't they? Yeah, so um, I, I've, um, I'm friends with a guy called Steve Bowden, who's the head coach at the Doncaster Knights. He's just recently t- uh, taken over there. And his message was that he said that he's loving this series more than series one. And uh, it's the Dean Asher Smith pod that made, in his words, a grumpy Yorkshireman like him smile and feel positive. Love it. And he loves the messages around accountability and controllable energy. So really grateful that Steve's been listening and grateful for him sending in such kind feedback. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. I was also chatting to someone who works at Manchester United and they said that all the people that are working behind the scenes at United have listened to the podcast we did with Oli Good and Solskjaer and internally at the football club are kind of using it now to spread the message externally about how they want Manchester United to be seen. It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah, very much. I think Ollie said to us that he was leading a cultural reboot and I think that isn't just the team on the pitch. It's about 
the team off the pitch as well. It's very much the Manchester United way that they're trying to implement there. So uh, as a United fan, I'm delighted that, uh, that, that people are buying into all these messages. I bet. I bet. We had a nice message from Connor saying, super interesting listening to Sean Dyche on the High Performance Podcast. Managers like him get unfairly portrayed by social media. Much more to him and his philosophy than initially meets the eye. And what, what I think is interesting, Damien, almost every time we've done one of these conversations or recorded one of these episodes, no matter who they are, at the end, they kind of let out a big, ah, oh, and then they say, I haven't spoken like that for ages and it's almost like they're creating these cultures they're living with these mindsets they're operating with these principles but they're never actually stopping and they're internalizing everything do you know what I mean it's all about the thought process and they don't really share it too often yeah I think I I, I think that's a really telling comment I think somebody like Sean Dyche is was incredibly self-aware. If you remember very early on in the conversation with us, he spoke about the awareness of how gruff his voice sounded and he can sometimes come across as quite dour. So we talked about his positivity rate and he aims for an eight to one positive to negative comments because of that. So he's obviously very self-aware, but I think for somebody then to articulate that and say that out loud to a willing audience, I think you're right. It often does feel a big relief for them. I mean, I always think back to... At the end of our interview with Sean, he said to us, didn't he? He said, we've not spoken about football once. And I think that's a really telling comment that we're talking about people that just happen to work, in his case, in football. And that's why there's a comment here. Let me find it. It said, um, this is from Jen Walsh. Even if you're not a football fan, this is a fantastic listen. So many basic principles that can be adopted in all walks of life, careers and industries. And that... It's one of the things that I really want to keep saying to people all the time is this is not a sports podcast. This is not a podcast for sports people or for sports lovers. This is a podcast for everyone. And it literally doesn't matter what your job is or even it's not even about your job, is it? It's about your life. This is like for me, they're life lessons. Absolutely. I think uh, my uh, younger brother's a teacher and um, so I've got friends that, that work in that uh, in that industry and the amount of them that have, that have asked me for clips or asked me to reference certain things that they can use in assemblies with children or, or just passing them on to their own children is that I think sometimes that you're never a prophet in your own land, are you? So with our own kids, they might not listen to us, but if you can get them to listen to Robin Van Persie, one of the greatest goal scorers of all time said exactly the same thing that we are it just it just accentuates and maybe helps the penny drop a little bit quicker um here's a question from global football coach damien asking what's been your favorite story on the pod ah right well it's actually a story that that wasn't on the pod but it features sir chris hoy that we've just listened to I remember that day in, in uh, it, so it was the drizzly wet December day in Manchester and we had the studio in the northern quarter of the city and we, I know we'd arranged to meet Chris at 10 o'clock and at 10 to 10 he turned up, didn't he? And when we were making small talk with him beforehand, I we made a comment about him, like thanking him for turning up early and he was bemused why we would thank him for doing his job. And when we sort of pursued it, he said, well... If I turn up later than you, that implies that I think my time's more important than you. And by definition, I'm more important. So that's unthinkable for him. So he said, so we've arranged for 10 o'clock. I'll be there on time. And I think to me, it was just a nice little anecdote that shared something about the man, just the reliability, the down-to-earth nature of him and the fact that he just does what he says he'll do. That, that one really stands out for me. That's really nice, that. I think when I think about... 
moments that have really stood out for me. I go back to um, Holly Tucker, who founded NotOnTheHighStreet.com. She was a guest in Series 1. And I loved it when she spoke about naivety and inexperience being a really good thing when you start a business. Because the number of people that have said to me over the years, yeah, I'd love to do it, but I don't know how or I haven't got any experience. You know, that that naivety, that kind of just jumping feet first in, with with absolutely no idea of the many, many pitfalls that lie in front of you is actually a good thing. It's good to not know all the things that can go wrong because you're a bit like a sort of um, a 17-year-old sports person getting their chance for the first time. They play with a freedom because they haven't been through the sort of difficult times that the, the older pros have. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm in agreement with you, Jake. I love that one of, uh, of Holly. The idea of naivety can be a superpower. Brilliant advice. And if you haven't yet heard the Holly Tucker episode at home, I would really recommend that you you get involved in that one. Um, how are you finding life on Instagram, Damien? <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's surprisingly kind. I think I'm a. I was skeptical of social media, but uh, Instagram seems very kind. Uh, I'm still getting to grips with cropping pictures and things like that. As you've, uh... I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate your advice you... on it. I was like, yeah, I'm sure that what he's put up there is highly inspirational and very educational, but I can only see every fifth word. <laughs> um, but you can follow Damien. Um, he is at Liquid Thinker, which is, you, you call yourself that because that's the name of one of your books, Damien, yeah? Yeah, it was the idea of, uh, the first book I ever did was called Liquid Thinking. So the idea was that uh, if you're solid in your thinking, you often keep coming up against the same obstacles. But if you're, it, but liquid finds a way through. So it's the idea of being flexible in your thinking patterns. Look at that. Even the name of his social media handle has a lesson for us. Um, Damien, thank you so much once again for uh, for the episode. Um, yeah, absolutely really enjoyed it. Um, a big thank you as well to Tom Griffin at Rethink Audio for recording the pod for us. Don't forget to follow at High Performance on social media. You can find Damien at Liquid Thinker. We're also um, on YouTube as well. Just look for the High Performance Podcast and you can watch some of the extended full-length episodes on there as well. That's it for this week, but don't forget, every single Monday, subscribe to the High Performance Podcast for a little injection of positivity to start your week. Have a good one. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money